And please, could you keep your Bibles open uh, to that page, page um, 962. Uh, and in your bulletin, uh, you will find an outline of the sermon on page 7 of the bulletin. So page 962 of the Bibles and page 7 of the bulletin. Well, good morning, uh, sisters and brothers. Uh, nice to see you all here. Thank you so much for um, uh, being with us today. Uh, and uh, particularly want to welcome, uh, once again, those who are new uh, and those who are visiting with us. Uh, there might be things that we talk about in this sermon that you'd like to uh, talk or discuss or pray with someone afterwards. Uh, sometimes there are some things that might be a little bit difficult. Uh, so uh, if you want to grab me after the service, uh, then very happy to do that. Uh, and uh, Sister Danielle, after the service, I've asked her to come and just uh, sit here in this uh, transept area on, uh, on your left, uh, and she'll be there and be happy to talk to anyone uh, who would like to talk with her as well. We've got page 962, page 962, and the um, outline on page 7 of the bulletin. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, and we'll begin. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, and we pray now uh, that you will be doing that as we consider this passage together. Uh, we ask that your Spirit will enable me to preach your Word rightly uh, and in your Spirit's power. Uh, and we pray that you would give us all hearts that are soft towards you, uh, that we might love Jesus and that we might obey him as our King. And we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. A kids' church teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with her five- and six-year-old students. And she explained the commandment to honor your father and mother. And then she asked, well, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And one little boy put his hand up very quickly. He is the oldest in his family, and he goes, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> when there is more than one sibling uh, in any household, Sibling rivalry is almost inevitable. But what happens if there is more than one king? In chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel, we saw that Jesus was God's promised king. Uh, we saw his genealogy. He was the legal son of David, the great king of Israel, whose dynasty God said would last forever. Like David, he was going to become king by saving his people. Uh, David saved his people from the Philistines. Jesus, the angel said, would save his people from their sins. When Jesus was born, there was no Davidic king on the throne. But that doesn't mean there was no king. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great, who ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC. He did not have a royal genealogy. He was a half-caste Jew who ruled as the cruel puppet of the Romans. And so many Jews considered him an illegitimate king. And so he was always insecure. We know from other historical sources that Herod killed his wife and two of his own sons because he thought that they were more popular than he. Caesar Augustus is, says to have, is said to have once remarked, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. 
Presumably Herod's pig was safer than the sun because he didn't eat pork. In 4 BC, on his deathbed, just five days before he died, Herod ordered the execution of another son because he thought that he was after his throne. And that same Herod, when he was about to die, also rounded up the respected citizens of every village, held them in custody, and his plan was to have them massacred the moment he died so that the whole country would be in an appropriate state of grief. Thankfully, his orders were overruled by his sister when he died, and the notables were released. So when you read, in the days of Herod the king, <laughs> this is the king, this is Herod, this is the kind of man that is talking about. In our passage today, this Herod will meet some people whom verse 1 calls wise men. Now, if you look at the footnotes, uh, you see the Greek word for them is magi. Now, the word magi was originally used for Zoroastrian priests uh, of the Medes and the Persians who specialized in interpreting dreams, uh, though by this time it was generally used for astrologers and sages and sorcerers and magicians. Surprising to find them here because God's people were strictly forbidden to dabble in these things. Verse 1 also tells us that they were from the East. Now, when we say people, someone from the East, it could mean from Japan or China or even Kuantan or Kuching. But in that context, from the East meant Arabia or Babylon or Persia. Not sure which. The other thing is we don't know how many there were. The plural is used, so there's at least two, but there might have been many. Right? The reason people normally think three is because there are three gifts mentioned. But there's no reason why it has to be three magi with three gifts, right? Any number of magi can kongsi and give three gifts. So one day, sometime after Jesus was born, uh, and again, we don't know quite when, could have been months later, these magi arrive in Jerusalem on a quest. And they're looking, in verse 2, they're saying, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And we don't know if this star was a supernatural thing that appeared to them alone, or there's various theories about the conjugations of the planets and the stars, which we won't go into right now. Uh, uh, but whatever they observed, it led these magi to believe that a king had been born for the Jews. And so they naturally go to that logical place, Jerusalem, the capital, to look for the king. And naively, actually, they go around asking, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Now imagine going to Pyongyang and going asking, where's the new leader? You know, the one who's going to replace Kim Jong-un. Or, or go to Tiananmen Square and say, oh, I've come to pay homage to the new emperor. Not such a good idea. And news of this quickly gets back to the palace. King of the Jews, a rival king to Herod? Now, when Herod hears about this in verse 3, he's troubled. And we're told, all Jerusalem with him. Right? When dictators feel insecure, who knows what they're going to do. But Herod doesn't just lock these magi up under the Sedition Act. Uh, he realizes that he needs to get to the bottom of this. If they are right, and this king has his own heavenly star, he must be pretty special. In fact, he must be God's promised king, the Christ, the Messiah. Or, even if the Magi are wrong, now there is some kid somewhere who might later claim to be king based on what this Magi have said. Either way, Herod must find this rival king so he can stop him. 
And he knows what to do. In verse 4, he gets all the chief priests and the scribes together and asks them where the Christ is to be born. And they know the answer because they know the Old Testament. They tell him in verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem was a little town on the outskirts of the great city of Jerusalem. But that was the place where King David's family came from. And verse 1 tells us that that was exactly the place where Jesus had been born. What's Herod going to do with this information? Well, in verse 7, he summons the wise men secretly. And he finds out from them exactly what time the star appeared. Right? The fact that he calls them secretly makes it suspicious that he's not being open, even with his own advisors. He's doing something out of personal motive, though in this case there's no danger of him being impeached. He's smart. And he finds out from the Magi the exact time the star appeared. So he knows exactly how old the baby is because that's going to be important for his plan B if plan A fails. But plan A first, use these Magi to find the baby. So he sends them to Bethlehem in verse 8, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may go and worship him also. So he tells them where to go, Bethlehem, and off they go. And once again, they see the star, which they had seen earlier. Uh, and as they head to Bethlehem, the star remains in the sky, so they follow it as it were. And, and when they reach a particular house in the village, the star appears to stop. They are overjoyed. They go into the house. They see the child with Mary, his mother. They fall down and worship him. And opening their treasures, they offer him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Old Testament had predicted a time when the nations would come to Israel to bring their gifts and offer worship to the one true God. Isaiah 60 spoke of a time after the exile when the glory of God would come to Israel and the nations would come to their light and the wealth of the nations would be brought to God's people and specifically mentions gold and incense from Sheba in Arabia. In Psalm 72, the kings of the nations come to God's Messiah, bringing him gifts and bowing in homage. And what we see here in the visit of the Magi is the first fruits, the foreshadowing of the fulfillment of these prophecies. It was a mini version of the day when people from all different nations would come and bring their treasures and lay them at the feet of Israel's Messiah. And friends, that day has dawned, hasn't it? Remember at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, these magi were the forerunners of people like, people like you and me. People who are not Israelite by birth, who are Gentiles, but have come to worship the King of the Jews, who bring our treasures to Him, everything we are, everything we have, and we acknowledge Him as our King. The quest of the Magi is over. All they need to do now is stop by Jerusalem on their way home and let Herod know where Jesus is so he can come and worship also. But in verse 12, they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they go home a different way. And when they leave, in verse 13, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, 
Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so Joseph gets up and takes the child and his mother by night, and they go off to Egypt. A very sudden, a very destructive mood. But it's important. There's danger. There's urgency. You've got to flee quickly under the cover of darkness. Now, why did they go to Egypt? Why, why send them to Egypt? Egypt's a long way. It's a terrible. You meant to get a little child on such a terrible journey. It's a long journey. Right? But there's good reasons for Egypt. Like when you think about it, maybe Egypt is outside Herod's jurisdiction. Now, lots of Jews there, especially in Alexandria, so they can settle easily into a Jewish community that feels like home uh, in a place where they can be safe. That's not actually the reason that's given to us in Scripture. There was another purpose in God's mind why the angel told that they had to run to Egypt. And we know this from the second half of verse 15. It says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now the prophet mentioned here is the prophet Hosea. And in Hosea 11, where the quote is from, Hosea is metaphorically referring to Israel as God's son. Israel was God's son whom he had called out of Egypt, and yet they had turned away from him. They had failed to be the people that he wanted them to be. And Matthew is showing us that actually Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus had to flee to Egypt so he can come out of Egypt, recapitulating the experience of Israel who came out of Egypt as a nation. For Jesus was going to be all that Israel was meant to be, but failed to be. He would not only be God's true king, he would also be God's true perfect people. And in fact, even today, we can be God's people only because we are in him. So having established this fact, Matthew switches back to Herod uh, in verse 16. Herod, when he sees he's been tricked by these wise men, becomes furious He sends and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem in the whole region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Ah, now we know why now. He wanted to exactly know the time that he saw the star. He wants to make sure he gets this kid even if something goes wrong with plan A. And so this evil man kills off all these little children to make sure he gets the one he's after. And yet... Even this was not outside God's sovereignty. Now, verse 17 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, The quotation there is from Jeremiah uh, 31, verse 15. Uh, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, who had been the ancestor of Israel. She was the mother of of Israel. And, and Ramah, that's where the captives of, of Jerusalem were, were gathered before they were sent to exile to Babylon uh, 600 years earlier, uh, 600 years before, before the coming of Christ. And so, and so in this prophecy, Jeremiah uh, is speaking about a time uh, near, his, near his time when the nation of Judah, in the midst of mourning and grief, would go off into exile into Babylon. And Matthew applies to the time where this young Jesus, in the midst of mourning and grief, goes off into exile to Egypt. And so he's saying, not only does Jesus recapitulate the exodus, he also recapitulates the exile. 
He is Israel, again, going off into exile amid cruelty and suffering and pain. But when you read Jeremiah 31, you find actually it's full of hope. God will remember his people. The exile will be followed by return. Sorrow will be followed by joy because God's going to bring them back and he'll make a new covenant with them and their sins will be forgiven. And so reading that Old Testament quote in context, we see hope in the midst of tragedy. And we look forward to the return of this child from the exile and the new covenant that he will eventually bring in. And stepping one step back then from the big picture of this Bible, from the, a big picture of the Bible, this flight into Egypt is the echo of a shadow. The shadow it echoes is Israel's exile. But the real thing, the actuality that the exile was pointing forward to, well, that would happen 30 years after this incident. The exile was Israel's definitive punishment, for at the exile, Israel faced the wrath of God for her sins. And yet that was just a picture of the ultimate punishment that the true Israel would face as he hung there on the cross, bearing your sin and mine. So Jesus going into Egypt echoes the exile, and the exile points forward to the cross. And the return from exile, well, that's a faint shadow of the resurrection. And at his resurrection, all the promises of God to, to bring Israel back would be fulfilled. Jesus, the true Israel, would be restored. And those who trust in him, those who are his, uh, will be this, this, this new people of God. In verse 16, we, he, we hear, we, we heard Herod's orders to kill the little children. The next thing we hear about Herod is in verse 19. Herod dies. We don't know how much time has elapsed between verse 16 and verse 19, but 2,000 years on, whatever it was, doesn't seem very much. Even cruel tyrants die, and they cannot escape from the fate they choose for others. No matter how powerful they are, no matter how powerful people are, no matter who they are, God's judgment always catches up with us in the end. When Herod dies, an angel again appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to return to Israel. Joseph does as he's told. But we know from history that after Herod's death, Israel was carved up among his sons. And the son that got Judea, where Bethlehem and Jerusalem were, was a guy called Archelaus, who it seems was a chip off the old block. In fact, the Romans would eventually get rid of him in 86 because of his bad behavior. So it's not surprising to read in verse 22 that when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and lived in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was a little town of no importance, a little agricultural village on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it was so tiny that some scholars used to think that Christians just made it up until it appeared on an early Jewish inscription found in 1962. The few people who lived in Nazareth, they were 
the slow, uneducated, unsophisticated, simple folk. The, the type of people that cultured city people look down on. As someone asked rhetorically in another context, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's despised. It's going nowhere. Nothing remarkable comes. It's just an Ulu place, no future, which, which is exactly the point. Look carefully at verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew is not quoting a prophet. He's talking about what was said through the prophets, plural. In other words, it's not a direct quote, but a general gist. He'll be called a Nazarene. That is, he'll be despised, to be looked down on. If you are someone who is despised for your ethnic group, your place of origin, your level of education, your accent, or whatever it is, Take heart. Jesus knows what it's like. But more importantly, as we look at the Old Testament passages that speak about Jesus being despised, we, this leads us to see more of who Jesus is. Isaiah 53 says, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And that passage is about the suffering servant who would die for the sins of many. Psalm 22, a psalm quoted by Jesus on the cross, uh, we read, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. That was a passage about God's Messiah who would suffer, but then be saved and vindicated. And so you see, the Son of God, the promised King, the true Israel, was going to grow up in a little village that people looked down on. He would be despised, for he was the true servant king who would die for his people. So, what do we learn from this passage? Well, first and foremost, we learn more about Jesus, don't we? The three places where Jesus lived tells us three things about him, understood in the light of the Old Testament. His birth in Bethlehem points to the fact that he was the promised king. His exile and return from Egypt shows that he is the true Israel. And his childhood in Nazareth tells us that he is willing to be accounted among the despised, and in particular, as the despised servant. And we'll talk about the servant more in future weeks. Secondly, we learn about God's plans. They do not fail. Everything that happens, no matter how bad, still has a purpose. People like Herod, no matter how powerful they are, they cannot thwart God's plans. And in spite of their evil, they end up being used by God for his purpose. And the word of God... (coughs) gets fulfilled. Thirdly, we learn something about human sinfulness. We are shocked to read about the killing of the babies of Bethlehem, and rightly so. Even if it was a small town and the number of babies wouldn't have been very huge, even one baby killed is one too many. But friends, in 2019, 42.3 million pre-born babies were killed worldwide by abortion. And that's compared to 8.2 million deaths from cancer, 5 million from smoking-related illnesses, and 1.7 million from HIV-AIDS. Abortion has become the leading cause of death on a worldwide scale, and that is horrific. And yet that is happening right now. If you've been involved in an abortion in some way, you can come to Jesus You can repent. You can be forgiven. Jesus died to pay the penalty for what you've done. He loves you. 
and is willing to forgive you and accept you. But if you are faced with an unwanted pregnancy, please don't even consider killing the baby as a solution to your problem. That would be terribly, terribly wrong. There are other alternatives. Come and chat with your pastors or leaders, one of your other leaders or one of your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and talk about it. Don't, don't be like Herod, who was willing to kill helpless babies and children for his own interests. But there's another way that we can be like Herod. Herod was insecure because he didn't want Jesus to be king over Israel. And some people feel threatened by Jesus because, well, they don't want him to be king over their life. They know the appropriate response to King Jesus is to bow down and worship him like the Magi. But like Herod, they would rather get rid of him instead. And they find all kinds of ways to battle against Jesus. Some deny his existence. Some try to curtail his influence. Some try to stop people from talking about him. But like Herod, they cannot win against God in the end. God will bring them to justice. Don't be like Herod. Don't, don't fight with God's king. Jesus is the king who was promised of old. The king who was humble enough to grow up in a peasant village and always be despised because of his humble upbringing. But the king at whose name every knee must bow. The king who will receive worship and tribute from every tribe and language and people and nation. The king who is the true Israel, who did on your behalf and mine everything the people of God were meant to do. The king who died to save us so that we can be forgiven and be part of his kingdom. Jesus was the rightful king of Israel, not Herod. And he is the rightful king in each of our lives. Whatever or whoever else we have in place as king, whoever it is who has our ultimate allegiance, even if it's ourselves, is an illegitimate pretender. Jesus is the rightful king who has come to your life and mine, and he wants to be our king. But if he's our king, then we're not king. We have to listen to him as he rules us by his word. We are to take on his values, his priorities, his agenda for our lives as our own. What are you going to do with King Jesus? Will you be like the religious leaders in our passage who know about him from the Bible, but just ignore him? Or will you be like Herod, who seeks to resist him, and destroy his influence? Or will you, like the Magi, bow before him and submit to his kingship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our King. Thank you that he's not a selfish and cruel King like Herod, but a loving King who is willing to suffer and die to save us, his people. Thank you that he is 
not only the true king, but the true Israel, who has rightly done all that your people are meant to do, but but have failed to do. And thank you that we Gentiles are included in that true Israel, even as we're included in him. Thank you for drawing us, like the Magi, from all the nations to come to him and worship him. And may we not only worship him with our lips, but truly worship him by surrendering our whole selves to him. May he truly be our king in our hearts and lives. May we live under his rule, adopt his values and priorities, obey his word and do his will. And please guard us that we might never let ourselves or anyone else compete with him for our ultimate allegiance. And we ask this, Father, in his name. Amen.